Heidi Ehrenreich. I'm the project director for Hope for Georgia Moms. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jane Ellis today. Um, I got to say, she, um, her reputation sort of preceded her when I got to know her over time. And, and the reason is she wears so many hats. She's just so very active. I knew she was on the um, Quality Collaborative GAPQC's advisory board. Um, she's on the Maternal uh, Mortality Review Committee, the MMRC, which we'll present on today. Um, she was working with um, the Regional Perinatal Center. She's the medical director. So she really um, was somebody who was a great force. And I was so excited that we got to work um, together side by side in a retreat just in August. And we talked about our st uh, strategic planning for the Hope for Georgia program, and she's also on the task force with us. So let me read a little bit about her background. Dr. Jane Ellis is the Associate Professor in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine, Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics at Emory University of Medicine. She is a Georgia native and grew up in the Brunswick St. Simons area. She attended Georgia Tech, and she received her BS, MS, and PhD there. And then she attended medical school at Emory University, where she um, pursued also her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology. And then following this completion of her residency, she pursued a fellowship um, in maternal fetal medicine at Emory. She joined the faculty of Emory in 2005 and has been an attending physician at the obstetric service at Grady Memorial Hospital. She is act actively involved in medical student resident and fellow training and teaching at Grady and has won several teaching and research awards. And she is the medical director for the Emory Regional Perinatal Center at the Grady Health System, which is the largest regional perinatal center in the state. And it's, re um, it's responsible for the quality of obstetric care provided in the 40 county North Georgia regional area. And that includes our county as well. And we work together with um, that Regional Perinatal Center, where she is the medical director of. Dr. Ellis is the OB medical director for the M&I grant, which is a grant funded by the federal and state monies to ensure quality care for indigent pregnant women at Grady and other regional perinatal centers. And she is the founding and current member of Georgia's Maternal Mortality Review Committee, MMRC, and is actively involved in the implementation of local, regional, and state patient safety and quality initiatives such as the AIM Patient Safety Bundles. Um, she works with the um, Georgia Perinatal Quality Collaborative, GAPQC, and um, Le Levels of Care Initiative, which is going through the House Bill 909. Uh, she's also active at the national level in the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists Committee on uh, Maternal Mortality. And Dr. Ellis has particular interest in identifying causes of and reducing maternal mortality, patient safety, and quality initiatives and maternal fetal outcomes in pregnant patients with medical comorbidities. So as you can see, she has a very fantastic resume and we're very excited that you were able to come in um, vir virtually presenting today. Um, there's just a couple approval statements. We have her CME and CE credit. Um, and I would like to just treat Northeast Georgia Health System as approved as a provider of the nursing continuing professional development by the Northeast Georgia Multi-State Division Education Unit and an accredited approver of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. And then the next slide, please, is um, that she has no individuals in a position to control content for this activity or have any relevant financial relationships to declare. There's no commercial support for her um, being here and receive, um, for, for this event. And then for successful completion of this learning event, um, you must complete a short CE or CME activity credit, um, and there's no partial credit available. And you'll receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity when she, to complete that accreditation credit process. So please welcome um, or join me in welcoming Dr. Ellis. Thank you. Um, I apologize. I had planned to be there in person, but my plans changed this morning. I had to stay in Atlanta. So uh, here we are on good old Zoom. I'm, you know, I can't remember the days now where we didn't have Zoom available. Um, and I guess it saves us in a lot of situations. So I really appreciate that um, introduction, Heidi. 
And I've enjoyed working with Heidi and Bridget and um, Mary Lou on uh, cardiac initiatives for obstetric patients that will be rolling out through Northeast Georgia. So again, I'm very happy to speak with you this afternoon about maternal mortality in Georgia. Next slide, please. And let me just say my dogs, I'm at home. So my dog, I have two Border Collies and an Australian Shepherd they, who cannot figure out why I'm at home at this time of day. They're in and out with balls and Frisbees. I'm trying to make sure everybody stays quiet, but there may be some barking in just a minute. So uh, I have no disclosures to make. Um, and I just wanted to say that today I'm not speaking as a member of the Maternal Mortality Review Committee or for Grady or for Emory or for DPH or Department of Public Health. But I'm really speaking as a provider who has the privilege of taking care of a lot of high risk and complicated pregnant patients. And I'm glad to see that we are all on the same page moving in the direction of providing care that will improve the outcomes of all our pregnant patients um, and their uh, families in Georgia and across the state, because I believe that they deserve our best efforts. So in talking about maternal mortality, uh, we're gonna look at some uh, basic objectives today. We'll look at terminology that's important to understand. We'll talk about the current status of maternal deaths worldwide and in the US, just briefly, just for perspective, and then we'll focus on what's happening here in Georgia. We'll highlight Georgia's leading causes of pregnancy-related and pregnancy-associated deaths. And then we'll look at recommendations made uh, for reducing maternal deaths from the Maternal Mortality Review Committee. Next. Okay. And uh, our um, Maternal Mortality Review Committee, as do most state committees, follow definitions that have been outlined by the by the CDC. So uh, a maternal mortality, I think there's one slide back. Can you go back one? Okay. So a pregnancy associated maternal death. This is the death of a woman while pregnant or within one year of the end of her pregnancy due to a cause that's unrelated to the pregnancy. For example, if she's pregnant and she's killed in a motor vehicle accident, she dies in a drive-by shooting in a house fire, those are considered uh, pregnancy-associated deaths. She did, not do, she did not die due to a cause related to the pregnancy. Pregnancy-related deaths, on the other hand, are the death of a woman while pregnant or within one year of the end of the pregnancy um, due to any cause related to or aggravated by the pregnancy or its management. So this would include a patient who died from a postpartum hemorrhage from an eclamptic seizure, who has a uterine rupture, um, a placental abruption, amniotic fluid embolus, something that comes directly from the pregnancy itself. We. This, the phrasing uh, one year within the pregnancy of the end of the pregnancy is included because when many states set up their maternal mortality review committees, they just looked at the first six weeks after the end of a pregnancy. Georgia was actually one of the first states to say, no, let's look out an entire year. And by doing that, we found a lot of pregnancy associated deaths, particularly those due to substance abuse and mental health conditions. So now I think all of the states that have the maternal mortality review committee set up, which is now most states do look a full year out. But in general, when you're talking about or hear people talking about maternal deaths, typically they're including both pregnancy associated and pregnancy related deaths. Next, please. A maternal mortality review committee, this is usually a multidisciplinary committee that's set up at a state level to review maternal deaths, determine the causes of deaths, determine if the deaths were pregnancy related or associated, determine preventability, and then make recommendations to reduce maternal mortality. You'll hear the, the statistic maternal mortality ratio discussed a lot. This is the number of pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 live births, usually over a one-year period. And then preventability. Per CDC, a death is considered preventable if the review committee determines that there, were a, there was at least some chance of the death being averted by one or more reasonable changes to patient, community, provider, family, and or system factors. And believe me, we spend a lot of time in the committee meetings uh, trying to determine the preventability of a death and making sure we have it, uh, uh, we designate whether it's preventable or not accurately. So let's talk about maternal mortality worldwide just quickly. On average, a woman dies, oops, go back, on average, thank you. On average, one more back. 
Okay, so a woman dies of a pregnancy-related cause somewhere in the world every two minutes. Most of these deaths are considered to would be preventable if the patient had the right access to care at the right time. Next. On average, this means that 770 women die each day from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. So in the year 2020, for example, 287,000 women died during and following childbirth. The maternal mortality ratio in the high-income countries, such as the U.S., on average is 12 per 100,000 live births versus 430 uh, maternal death, pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 live births in low-income countries. And these are statistics from 2020. Last year, I think, um, uh, in 2021, South Sudan, I believe, recorded the highest maternal mortality ratio ever noted. They had 1,722 maternal deaths for every <clears throat> 100,000 live births. More than 90% of maternal deaths occur in developing and low, recess, uh, low resource settings. Next. And I think if you go back one more. Forward one more. Okay, thank you. The leading causes of death worldwide are hemorrhage, infection, complication from delivery, and unsafe abortion. And of course, most of these deaths would be preventable if these patients had access to adequate prenatal care, skilled care during delivery, and good postpartum care uh, following their delivery. But of course, this is typically, uh, these are typically things not available in low resource settings. Next. So let's look at what's happening in maternal mortality here in the U.S. And I think we can do four facts and four graphs. We'll look at uh, the U.S. ranking, black-white disparities, leading causes of maternal deaths, and then look at trends in maternal mortality in the U.S. between 2018 and 2021. Next. Okay, maternal mortality worldwide has been dropping since 1990, except in the U.S., uh, the maternal mortality ratio has been rising um, steadily in the U.S. over the past few years. And as you can see in this graph, in 2020, uh, the U.S. maternal mortality ratio was 23.8. The next highest developed country was France with a maternal mortality ratio of 8.7. Proposed reasons for the higher rates uh, in the U.S. despite our good health care system are our high C-section rate, inadequate prenatal care, elevated rates of chronic illnesses such as diabetes, hypertension, and obesity, missed or delayed opportunities for treatment. Next. Black women face three times the maternal mortality risk as white women. So in 2020, uh, the maternal, ratio, maternal mortality ratio for black mothers in the US was 55 versus 19 for white mothers and 18 for Hispanic mothers. The reasons for this uh, are not clear, but the proposed reasons include underlying chronic conditions such as diabetes and high blood pressure, variation in the quality of health care, social determinants of health, structural racism, and implicit bias. Next. The leading causes of maternal mortality in the U.S. are cardiovascular conditions, infection of sepsis, hemorrhage, thromboembolic events, and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And if you look at this bar graph, CDC breaks down a lot of the causes of death into different categories. So if you look at the, the bar on the far left and then the third from the left, these are uh, other cardiovascular conditions and cardiomyopathy. When those are combined, uh, they together form the leading cause of maternal death, both in the US and in Georgia. Next. And lastly, the U.S. maternal mortality ratio continues to increase substantially. It's gone from 17.4 in 2018 to 32.9 in 2021. Some of the, the increase in 2021 was probably due to COVID deaths. So we're, begin, we're beginning to sort that out. And we've reviewed quite a few COVID deaths here in Georgia. Um, I read an article from the Kaiser Family Founda Foundation yesterday, and they said that they think the maternal mortality ratio for 2022 is probably going to drop since we will be over the COVID deaths, uh, but we don't know if that's going to what that drop's going to be and if it will be a substantial drop. Next. All right, so let's focus on what's happening here in Georgia. This was our 
first maternal mortality report that the committee issued, notice it came out in uh, June of 2015, and it was from our case review in 20, 2012. It took a little while to kind of get things going in this area, but we did publish this report, and it is available online for anyone who likes to review it on the Department of Public Health uh, website. Next. Back one. Thank you. So in 2010, Amnesty International uh, put out this publication called Deadly Delivery, the Maternal Health Care Crisis in the U.S. At that time, Georgia was noted to be the worst state for maternal mortality. Dead last, 50th, can't go down any further than that. So back in the eight, and now this group called Wise Voter, which keeps a lot of uh, statistics of various types, says that Georgia's 42nd in the state, we're not in the nation, we're not sure if that's correct or not. But um, back in the 1980s and early 1990s, I'm told, um, there was a maternal mortality review committee in Georgia. It used to meet in Macon. Um, it was apparently, apparently a very robust committee for a while, but then finally fell by the wayside for lack of um, you know, sustainability, lack of interest, and lack of funding. So when this um, publication from Amnesty International came out, Amnesty International came out, I was sitting in my office at Grady and Michael Lindsay, who was my um, co-MFM at Grady and my boss, came into my office and said, I need you to do something. I have been tasked with setting up a maternal mortality review committee again, and I want your help. So I kind of looked at him and thought, boy, I got so much other stuff to do. I started to say no, but you know, it's hard to say no to your boss. And he kind of, any of you know, Dr. Lindsay, he kind of has this look, he just looks at you and then you do what he wants you to do. So I am fortunate that when he asked me to do this, I felt that I needed to do it because it's been one of the most rewarding experiences in my career, getting this committee up and running. Next. So the current maternal mortality review committee in Georgia is made up of about 45 members. I think we started with about 12 regulars uh, and it's grown over the course of the years. It's multidisciplinary in nature and uh, participants in the committee come from all areas of the state. We are supported by legislation, which is Senate Bill 273, which provides funding for the committee and also legal protection for members of the committee so that we don't have to testify on um, legal cases and so forth. We meet quarterly, to, four to six times per year to review about 20 to 25 maternal deaths per meeting. And we have trained abstractors that review each case and then develop a de-identified case uh, summary for the uh, committee to review. So when we review a case, we have like a three or four, four page summary of, about this patient's life and death. We know her age, we know her BMI, we know her parity, we know her uh, education and occupation. We do not know her name. We do not know the county where she lived or died. We do not know the hospitals involved, and we do not know the providers uh, involved, and the committee wants to keep it that way. So we examine all cases of maternal deaths, and we determine the cause of each death and if the death was pregnancy-related or pregnancy-associated. Again, this usually generates a lot of discussion among the committee members. We also identify medical and non-medical factors that potentially contributed to the maternal death. Next. We determine if the death could have been prevented and look at possible uh, interventions um, that could have been taken to prevent the death. We make recommendations to key stakeholders to further reduce maternal mortality uh, in Georgia. The stakeholders we typically report to or, or, or interact with a lot is the Department of Public Health and the Georgia legislature. And the Department of Public Health, let me say these three Ps, periodically publishes publicly available updates on the findings. Um, so the maternal mortality reports come out about yearly now, I think is our goal, and they are available on the uh, Department of Public Health website for anybody to review. We count, uh, DPH calculates the maternal mortality uh, ratio each year when our reviews are complete. And then the committee also makes broader recommendations for reducing maternal mortality. And these typically go to patients, uh, providers, uh, family members, and the public. Next. Okay, so what are some of the findings from the uh, state committee? Let's look at the causes of our, our pregnancy-related death by years. So from 2012 to 2015, we identified 28 maternal deaths, and we really had to figure out how to make sure we were reviewing all deaths, because when we went back and looked, we found that we, we had missed some deaths, and those had to be reviewed later. 
but from 2012 to 2015, um, we identified 28 deaths with hemorrhage, hypertension, and cardiac issues being the leading causes of death. From 2012, I'm sorry, 2018 to 2020, we identified 78 maternal deaths with cardiomyopathy, hemorrhage, and mental health conditions um, being the three major causes. And then when you add the other cardiac conditions to cardiomyopathies, uh, cardiac conditions in general were the leading cause of death. Next. Our pregnancy-associated deaths in Georgia by years, again, uh, looking at the time period 2012 to 2015, Motor vehicle accidents, homicides, and suicides were the three leading causes. 2018 to 2020, uh, motor vehicle accidents, trauma, suicide, and then mental health condition were the leading causes of uh, the pregnancy-associated deaths in Georgia. Next. So let's look at some of the findings that have come out recently um, from, the, from the MMRC. First of all, we noted that striking racial disparities um, exist in Georgia. The, MM, the mater, maternal mortality ratio among non-Hispanic Black women was 48.6 versus 22.7 for non-Hispanic whites um, in the period 2018 to 2020. Again, the etiology of these differences is not clear. In recent reviews over the past several years, almost all pregnancy-related deaths attributed to hemorrhage, mental health conditions, cardiac conditions, and preeclampsia and eclampsia were determined by the committee to have been preventable. Most patients experiencing a maternal death had Medicaid as their primary insurance, and most of the deaths occurred in the postpartum period in the first uh, 42 days after delivery. Symptom, we found in review of a lot of the cases that symptoms reported by patients who died were often overlooked as unimportant by the patient, by family members and providers due to an overlap with symptoms that can be normal during the pregnancy and postpartum period. I'll always remember one patient in postpartum period that had a cardiomyopathy. She went to different providers on about three or four different occasions in the first three or four weeks after her delivery with the chief complaints of shortness of breath, chest pain, fatigue, her legs swelling. And she was told at every, um, of every visit per her family members that uh, providers just said, you know, you've just had a baby. Of course, you're tired. Of course, your feet are going to swell because you're up all the time. Um, sent home and she died um, going back to her car uh, in the parking lot after her last uh, visit. Uh, so we really are trying to figure out how we can best educate um, our providers and patients to make sure that these symptoms are not overlooked. We found that comorbidities such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, substance, substance use, and mental health issues likely played a role in many of the maternal deaths. And again, uh, we need a lot of education on concerning symptoms, along with encouragement to seek care when symptoms occur. We need to tell patients advocate for yourself, go to the hospital, call your provider, whatever you need to do. If you are concerned about what's going on, your doctor needs to know. We also found that lack of access to care is very concerning here in Georgia. Georgia has 159 counties and 82 of those counties have no OB providers or services at all. And another 15 have only one provider. 38 rural hospitals have with labor and delivery units have closed over the uh, recent years, probably in the last 10 years or so. And this has resulted in large OB uh, desert areas throughout the state, meaning it's hard for patients to access care. We also thought um, as part of our findings that discrimination and implicit and racial biases were also likely to have been key factors in some maternal deaths. Next. Okay, so let's look at some recommendations that the committee has made. First of all, we recommended that extension uh, of postpartum Medicaid um, be, um, be done beyond the traditional 42 days. In 2021, the legislature did extend postpartum Medicaid for a full year postpartum. Uh, what I find with my patients at Grady is that they're not, they're not aware of this. So I tell every ultrasound patient I see, every clinic patient I see, that you have Medicaid for a full year after your baby's born, make sure you're using that. We also recommended additional funding to support maternal morbidity and mortality reduction strategies statewide. So the legislature set aside $2 million for the implementation of the AIM bundles, which are the patient safety bundles, 
on management of hypertension and obstetric hemorrhage. Um, and most of the funding went to support the initiation of these bundles in the rural setting. Use of family and informant interviews when a maternal death uh, occurs. This sounds really straightforward. And if you can get a family member to talk to you about a patient who's died, it, it adds just such a richness to her life and to her death that you can't get by looking at an EMS report or a police report, coroner's report, her medical records, and so forth. So we really, uh, have, over the past three years, have tried to fully implement this recommendation. Um, some states actually have legislation in place that prevent the Maternal Mortality Review Committee from talking to family members. Not sure why that's in place, but uh, fortunately, Georgia, that does not happen in Georgia. And we talk to family members or other informants when we can. We recommended closer postpartum follow-up for women with high-risk conditions, such as diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. And we are uh, rec we've recommended blood pressure checks at 72 hours after discharge when patients have some form of preeclampsia. This is done typically by mobile health units. Um, we have a very robust mobile health unit service at Grady, and all of our patients with preeclampsia have a visit within three days of discharge um, and a report sent back to the provider um, about the woman's blood, uh, blood pressure and generally how she's doing. All of our patients with uh, high blood pressure at Grady and in many uh, hospitals and clinics across the state have provided blood pressure uh, cuffs for their patients and they've instructed them on how to use it, how to record your blood pressure and then bring their logs into their clinic visits. And we're also using uh, mobile health uh, units to visit patients with high blood pressure who can't get back into the hospital. And a lot of this we are doing with telehealth visits. Um, we like to see all of our postpartum patients at Grady, even our lowest patients, within one to three weeks of discharge. A lot of patients say they can't come back in because they've got a new baby or other issues going on at home. So we've utilized uh, the telehealth services uh, really robustly, and it's worked well for both providers and patients. Next. The obstetric care system, including providers, insurance companies, and hospitals should actually be providing case management services for women during their pregnancy and up, for one year, up to one year postpartum. We should also, as I said earlier, be educating patients and families on uh, warning signs and symptoms and uh, that could indicate a life-threatening condition for the patient, or even maybe not life-threatening, but something that's concerning to the patient. And we are encouraging them to call their providers and to seek care. The committee recommended that pro providers should provide reproductive life planning, counseling, and interconception care when treating patients with chronic condi conditions of reproductive age. We want providers to encourage pregnancy spacing and for moms who have um, diabetes and high blood pressure, we're encouraging them to come back in for a preconception visit so that we make sure their diabetes, their high blood pressure, whatever is well controlled so that they are ready to go through another pregnancy safely. And then we advocate for improved access to all areas of reproductive care for all women. This includes access to uh, birth control and birth control counseling. And in, and in situations where termination may, may be needed for a patient, usually for maternal health um, reason, then those options should be available also and reviewed with the patient. And then just kind of some general things. We've uh, asked to expand and improve access to mental health services. And there are several initiatives in place statewide um, so that patients have access to mental health providers. We wanted improved communication and coordination of patient care uh, during their pregnancies among providers and facilities. And for those hospitals like Grady and Emory that use EPIC, uh, this has helped tremendously because we can see what goes on at other EPIC-based facilities too. Patients and families uh, educated on warning signs and also identifying and addressing barriers that limit access to quality maternal health care. Uh, both at the health system and societal level. For example, with my patients at Grady, I think the biggest barrier to them getting into care is transportation. So our high-risk nurses at every visit, a new visit for a patient, instruct them on how to access the Medicaid uh, transportation services. And for those patients that can do that, that's worked uh, wonders for them, they say. Uh, let me go back one, if you'll go back one just quick. One slide, thank you. We also have made recommendations, and this applies primarily to EMS, and we're working with our EMS providers to help 
um, develop some training um, modules for them, but transporting pregnant and postpartum patients to facilities with appropriate resources to take care of the patient is extremely important. We've seen in several situations where patients say with known accretus who were bleeding uh, were transported to a hospital that really was not set up to take care of their needs, but per EMS protocols, they often have to take them to the nearest facility. So we're trying to work out some mechanisms to make sure patients get to the right facility for whatever issue they have going on. Next. And then just some kind of general public recommendations we've made. We wanted to encourage seatbelt use. We're still finding moms who are, who are dying in motor vehicle accidents. Oftentimes there was no evidence of seatbelt use, um, enhanced gun safety campaigns. And then we really think it's important that uh, maternal screening for intimate partner violence, substance abuse, and depression be done at every well woman OB and postpartum visit. And then development of public health campaigns from the Department of Public Health on the issues noted above, as well as on the need for obstet good obstetric and postpartum care. We think these can be recommendations that will help um, here in Georgia. So in summary, our current maternal mortality statistics in Georgia need changing. A, con num a concerning number of deaths were determined by Georgia's MMRC to be preventable, especially true for our cardiac, uh, cardiac and coronary conditions and for our hemorrhage and mental health conditions. We noted that there are large racial <clears throat> disparities present in maternal deaths and discrimination and implicit and racial bias, bias were found to play a role in some maternal deaths. And then initiatives fortunately are underway to heighten awareness of these issues and to improve outcomes. Next, some of these initi initiatives include the Department of Public Health and GAP QC's AIM initiative, the patient safety bundles, obstetric hemorrhage, hypertension have been rolled out. We are now, attempting to roll, roll out the cardiac conditions and obstetric care bundle because cardiac conditions are the leading cause of maternal death, both in Georgia and nationally. DPH has um, implemented the uh, levels of care initiative, which is designed to make sure hospitals provide the levels of care for patients that they say they're uh, able to provide and that the patients get to the appropriate levels of care. And then here at Northeast Georgia, I'm so impressed with what you guys have done. Um, your uh, the Hope for Georgia Moms program that you've got the uh, large uh, HRSA grant for. I'm delighted to be involved um, in helping with um, planning for some of these initiatives and uh, just a big pat on the back to you guys for this wonderful work. And then many of the um, university systems, Emory, Morehouse, Augusta, Mercer, are all implementing some type of maternal mortality or global um, health initiatives to help reduce um, severe maternal morbidity as well as maternal mortality. And of course, there are um, many uh, um, groups in the community like Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies and the Black Mamas Matter Alliance that have quite a number of oppressive uh, initiatives in place and moving forward with improving care. So there's so many other individuals, groups and organizations I could, men I could mention. But what I think it's going to take, it will take everyone working together in a very coordinated, patient-centered manner to achieve the maternal, fetal, and neonatal outcomes that our Georgia mothers, their babies, and their families deserve. And that's it. Thank you. There's my cell phone, just like everybody else does. Please call me if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellis. Um, are there any questions for Dr. Ellis from the audience you have to follow up? One in the back. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ellis, for that. Um, of course. My question is, um, we have a lot of statistics now about maternal mortality. Where can we go to find more about morbidity and some of the things that we need to be doing to address that as well? That's an excellent question, and thank you for that. Um, I know Emory is has developed a very robust um, program looking, and they're actually collecting a lot of data on this that I wasn't aware, um, that they are looking to uh, collect data on severe maternal morbidity across the state, not the mortality, but the morbidity. Um, and I think we are trying to get a database in place that will be available publicly 
in the near future. That At least that's the plan at this point in time. So you're happy if you would email me, I'll uh, keep you up to date on that. But I think the Department of Public Health, the GAPQC with the different initiatives, the Georgia Hospital Association um, and other groups are also keeping data on uh, severe maternal morbidity since that is much more common than maternal mortality. Um, and each of those groups have a data person that you can contact or either just go to their websites and uh, find out who their data people are, and they uh, can tell you what type of information and how they can share that with you. Thank you. So we are going to invite Heidi Ehrenreich and uh, Savannah Sanders, and we're going to just do a few minutes of a panel discussion, and um, Dr. Ellis will just stay with us. Okay. So um, I will let Heidi and um, Savannah introduce themselves. Do you need a mic as well? I have one right here. Or you want to um, real quick, and then we'll get a few questions. All right. Thank you. Yes, I'm the project director just since November of the Hope for Georgia Moms project. And before that, I was in the Office of Research, which I love. And I love that they have these events. So thank you, Holly and team for organizing these. And uh, my background is in public health. And so it was something that um, worked out really well that they need someone to manage the grant and, and manage a lot of the activities. And I feel like um, that's something I want to do well and hope that I can um, succeed with the vision that they had originally and, and come up with some new ones as well, which we can probably talk about today. Hello, my name is Savannah Sanders. I am a physician assistant here at GHI. Um, I was specifically hired to be the uh, women's heart coordinator for uh, this maternal cardiac program that GHI has been working so hard to get up and running. Um, I've been with GHI for about a year. Um, I've been a part of uh, creating this program uh, since I've been hired, but really put a lot of focus on it starting around July, August. Um, so just happy to be here and happy to uh, be able to share where we are and where we're hoping to be. Thank you both. And thank you so much, Dr. Ellis, for that wonderful presentation. Really, really informative. Um, so I'll start with you, Dr. Ellis. Um, you talked about um, implicit bias and how that was one of the things that was actually identified as possibly contributing to some of the maternal mortality. Um, would you share with us as a physician, um, are there things that you're doing to help address that or any um, thoughts on how other physicians can help um, address that? Oh, that that's, a, that's a tough question, but it's one we are, you know, are all dealing with. And I went back and looked up the definition of implicit bias and the American Psychological Association, which I guess deals with a lot of uh, terminology and all related to this area, defines it as a form of bias or prejudice that occurs unintentionally um, and automatically that nevertheless influences uh, and affects judgment decisions and behaviors. So I don't know if any of you, I wish I could see a show of hands, but um, we, we were required to do implicit training, bias training at Grady, which I thought, oh dear, you know, what is this going to be? I, I was totally floored by what I found out about myself during that training. And they gave us a simple little task to start with, where they gave you patients' names, a pregnant patient, her BMI, and a medical condition or two. And then the task was, okay, this is a patient you've never met. Here's the basic information. Tell us about this patient. What are you gonna, what do you think before you walk in the room about this patient? And I was quite surprised at my own um, biases that came out. So we we at Grady have been uh, doing a lot of training with our physicians to try to recognize those biases um, and not let them get into the way in the way of patient and provider um, interactions. But it can be hard to do, but we have to work at it and we have to make sure we're not letting those biases influence the way we interact with our patients and the uh, way we take care of our patients. But it's it's hard. It's it's a daily effort to remember those things. Great. Thank you so much. Heidi, um, tell us a little bit about Hope for Georgia Mops. 
Okay. Well, basically, it's a five-year program to reduce maternal mortality in Georgia. And the what, how are we going to do that? Well, the division of the people who created this grant, which was written by Bridget <laughs> and Mary Lou Wilson, who said, look, we know cardiac conditions. What we hear today is a leading cause of death. Let's do something about it. So they made this incredible proposal to HRSA, Health Resources and Service Administration, who said, look, um, implement this program. And we think, you know, by facing maternal cardiac conditions as a um, uh, among pregnant postpartum women, that we, if we identify that those uh, signs and symptoms and have a screening, um, that would be really something that would make a difference in maternal mortality. And so that's one big part of Hope for Georgia Moms. Um, another part really is data, right? We're talking about where do you get SMM data, the morbidity data, it's still challenging. We need to help work on getting better data. We want better um, uh, mortality data that, that sub submitted um, when we're in a timely matters, manner so that the committee can review it in a more you know, up-to-date um, fashion. Um, also, the, the morbidity data isn't always submitted. Um, it's voluntary by health systems. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll work on a registry here at um, um, Northeast Georgia Health System with this morbidity data. And wouldn't it be great if other health systems also could um, create some registry of their own and we could all submit it. So this is sort of a vision, um, a dream that we have in part of Hope for Georgia Moms. And then the third part of Hope for Georgia Moms is really the, the centerpiece um, of why I think it can work. And that's the task force. And the task force is made up of members like Dr. Ellis, other um, professionals who've been working for years and years in this field, have been working hard in understanding how to improve it. So we have um, clinicians, we have medical directors, um, for example, of, um, of payer systems. It'll be from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, of United Healthcare, um, of Medicaid. We have um, regional perinatal center directors, um, besides Dr. Ellis, also from um, Augusta University. We have um, research institutes like the Rural Health Center for, um, for Rural Center for Health Disparities out of um, Macon. Um, we have a lot of community-based organizations doing great work. So we um, heard about Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies, Black Mamas Matter. They do a lot of work in policy. So we're really approaching it from all different perspectives. And the vision here is to say, okay, we bring these people from, you know, elevate what they're doing and sort of move on from there. So organically kind of create um, something that can move the needle basically. And so we want to move the needle and just to wrap it up, Hope for Georgia moms, yes, it's about reducing mortality, but really we want to make it about people wanting to, to have babies, not worry about them, they're dying or their babies dying. So we want to have joy in that. And we call it hope and that's healthy outcomes and positive equitable experiences for Georgia moms. And we hope that that's the vision that we can sort of, um, you know, further through our time in this grant. So. Thank you so much, Savannah. I have a question for you now. So um, we've heard a lot about mortality um, across the state and we've heard a little bit about hope who um, we hope over the next five years, no pun intended, uh, that we can impact that in some way. So let's talk about some of the things happening at Northeast Georgia specifically. Tell us a little bit about the maternal cardiac program here at Northeast Georgia. Absolutely. So um, here at the maternal cardiac program, we are currently screening moms for cardiovascular conditions, day one post-delivery on mother and baby unit. Things that we're looking for on this screening are, are they currently having signs of symptoms of cardiac conditions? Are their vital signs elevated? Do they have risk factors? And then of course, do they have any sort of physical exam finding that might, us, might make us say, hmm, this is not normal. Um, all of that is gathered together. And if a patient is deemed at risk, then um, they are sent uh, to us either by an inpatient consult or by an ambulatory referral. Um, and through that point, it is our goal to um, monitor those patients for a full year postpartum. Just as Dr. Ellis has said that it used to be that 
we only want to see them for six weeks. Once you get through that six weeks, you're in the clear. And we now know that that is not the case, that we need to monitor our mothers and make our mothers aware of you know, the risk that they're at for a full year postpartum. So until they celebrate their baby's first birthday, if they start having new signs or symptoms, they need to make us aware, the OB aware, someone needs to be communicating, advocate for yourself. Um, again, with cardiac conditions, oftentimes um, can sound like pregnancy symptoms. Oh, you're short of breath. Oh, you have swelling in your feet. Oh, you're tired. Well, when you're pregnant, oftentimes that gets told that it's normal. But if you have someone who has a history of cardiac conditions, if they came to me and said, I have shortness of breath, my legs are swelling and I'm tired all the time. I go, well, you might be having, you know, an exacerbation of some sort of cardiac condition. We should look into this. Um, so we need, we can't uh, rule out cardiac um, conditions for women who have these symptoms. Um, and putting the education out there is something that we're really trying to do with this Women's Heart Center as well. Uh, we would like to be able to um, make telehealth an opportunity and remote patient monitoring an opportunity where our women who have preeclampsia or postpartum preeclampsia, they can monitor their blood pressure at home. It's not standard for most young women to have a blood pressure cuff at home. So what can we do to help them have the resources to monitor their blood pressure? Um, and then of course, telehealth, they're young moms, they need to work, they want to care for their children. They don't want to come in and see me or and say, well, you know, I don't have time. I, I don't have somebody to keep my kid. Well, I have three kids. I can't bring all three kids to my doctor's office. It, there becomes lots of barriers to care. So we're hoping within this maternal cardiac program that we can help open up some telehealth opportunities to at least get these moms seen and taken care of as well. Thank you so much. And this question is for any of you or all of you. Um, tell me, what you think would be one first step that we could take that could help impact maternal mortality? We'll start with you, Dr. Ellis. <laughs> well, I think, um, uh, you know, I'm delighted to see that Medicaid has been extended for a year. It's going to take a while for us to see the impact of that. But I really think a lot of patient education on that issue, encouraging them to, to utilize that, to come in when you have symptoms, to schedule visits. Uh, if you're not feeling good, please come to the hospital, call Medicaid. I think uh, teaching patients to advocate for themselves and have them make us listen to them when they are advocating for themselves which they're going to be able to do a little bit more effectively, I think, with Medicaid, with their extended Medicaid. But um, I think we just need to learn to listen to our patients and encourage our patients to make us listen to them. Thank you. I would agree completely, Dr. Ellis. Um, I think we need to listen to our patients, but also I feel like it's important that we educate our patients as well. Um, being a mom and being a young female, oftentimes I go, oh, I'll sleep it off or, oh, it's just been a bad day. I'll think about it tomorrow. Oh, I had two high blood pressure readings. I probably just drank too much caffeine. Um, we're always looking for that excuse of why there's something that's not wrong. Um, and sometimes we do have to accept, okay, I do need to seek help for myself. Um, I, one thing that I tell all of my patients is you can't take care of your kids. You can't take care of your family. You can't take care of who you need to take care of if you don't take care of yourself first. So when you recognize those symptoms and you recognize that there's something going on, reach out so that you can care for yourself, um, so that you can be there to care for those other family members. Perfect. Thank you. I think I would add to what you both are saying that I really see it as a systems approach that we would really need. You might have the best um, education or the best um, uh, approaches in place, but if we don't have sort of the systems to make it sort of possible, there can be just a lot of barriers. And what I mean by systems can mean a lot of things, I, I realize, but um, just one one that comes to mind would be sort of policy kind of at the same time dovetailing into what, you know, the proposals are. Um, another would be just kind of on a, um, if we want 
change, like in the hospital system, we know that a lot of things, if they're automated, right, through Epic or something like that, it's it's going to happen more readily, right? Even if, if people want and understand that it's the right thing to do, if it doesn't work in the workflow, then there's going to be barriers. So if, you know, if I could see one thing, you know, is taking something that is pretty uh, well-developed, whether it's education or advocacy campaigns, and being able to kind of see how they can be implemented kind of in, assist, in their systems better, and maybe that kind of goes back to what Dr. Taylor's you know, talk, what are, what are those systems defining it? I don't have those answers either, but I like that approach. Great, thank you. Um, I think another thing that has really stood out for this program and for the work that we've done so far is collaboration. And um, I love that we um, started this at a time that OB was coming to the table because our state perinatal quality collaborative that you've heard today decided to focus on cardiac conditions. Um, and at the same time, when we got to the table with GHI and said, we really need to partner with you, uh, they were working on the Women's Heart Center and Savannah came on board. So really has been a great collaboration. But I have a question and anyone can answer this as well. Other than OB and cardiology, what partner would you want most at the table to be successful in this whole cardiac conditions rollout? For me, there's not just one. <laughs> the biggest. Uh, one. So I can't. I can't pick one um, because exactly what you're saying is that vision here is to have this multidisciplinary team. Um, the women that we're seeing, they are not simple. They're not straightforward. You know, you have the fetus that you're caring for or the baby that they've just delivered that they're caring for. So you have to think about that dynamic. Uh, you have to think about what about whenever they get home, are they going to have the support that they need? Um, what about medications? A lot of the medications that um, are for um, cardiac conditions. We can't use if you're pregnant or if you're breastfeeding. What does that dynamic look like? So having a multi multidisciplinary team, um, we have recently hired a pharmacist with um, to be able to help with some of these um, pharmaceutical concerns who can be helpful in uh, managing these uh, patients with diabetes during their pregnancy, adjusting their insulin, giving them education, um, same uh, guidance when it comes to medications for what can we give you uh, whenever you're breastfeeding? What can we give you while you're pregnant? Um, give them education on, hey, we need to give it a chance to work or, hey, we've given it a chance to work. We need to talk about other options and having that resource, not only for the patient to utilize, but also for providers as well. Sometimes uh, when we hear the word pregnancy, everybody kind of cringes, like, I don't want to deal with that. Um, <laughs> so um, also there's a, a new social worker um, that we're hoping to get involved as well to who can help get them the education that they need as far as resources, outpatient, um, and get getting them connected. So um, a, a dietitian who can help some of these women who maybe they're at risk because they have high blood pressure, they have obesity. Uh, maybe if we could help get some of that weight loss down, would that also help with some of these other things that are going on, having a dietitian there to help support them, um, a dietitian to help them during their breastfeeding process. Hey, what, what do you need to eat to help with your, your production or, or what is going to help throughout this process? So having everybody at the table is super important to me. So that's why I can't just pick one, Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Dr. And Ellis? You know, uh, yeah. Um, and those are all wonderful suggestions. We have an OB pharmacist at Grady who is just phenomenal. Uh, I learn more from her every day that, you know, I didn't think I didn't know, but she's great. But also, I think across the state, we're looking to educate our family medicine and our ED providers about yes. issues related to especially cardiac conditions, because in many areas of the state, where there's no OB provider or not even a midwife to go to, our patients are going to EDs and they're going to family medicine practices. And those providers are, of course, doing everything they can to help the patient. But uh, pregnancy is a different ball of wax. As you say, everybody is scared of a pregnant woman. So uh, we need a lot of education, I think, for all the providers out there who are going to be helping us take care of our pregnant patients and postpartum patients, too. Thank you. And I think our time is getting very close. Are there any questions in the audience? I'd love to. Yes. Robin? Um, 
I can repeat online. They might not be able to. I can repeat it if you want to yell it out. Oh, here comes the mic. Holly to the rescue. Um, Savannah, can you walk me through uh, if you come see one of my postpartum patients who is at risk or symptomatic, what does that look like for that visit that you see her face-to-face -face while she's um, on mom baby and what it looks like for her the next few weeks after she's discharged? Absolutely. So um, a lot of it will depend on the reason that they screened positive. Um, but just for the most part, um, if they screen positive, we're going to get an EKG and an NT pro BNP on those patients. Um, an NT pro BNP is something that can kind of help us, uh, let us know if they are at risk, um, or have any signs of heart failure, uh, which we know cardiomyopathy is a huge component, um, as well as getting this EKG to see if there's any acute abnormalities with those EKGs. Um, and ultimately myself or, um, a fellow MD cardiologist who is rounding that day will likely come and see that patient, um, you know, ask her, do you have any sort of family history? Have you experienced this in prior pregnancies? Um, you know, how is your blood pressure, those sort of things. Uh, so we try to take a look at the whole picture of uh, how the patient looks physically. Is she symptomatic? Is she, um, you know, how does she feel? And then also currently, um, looking at vitals, look at, um, lab results, things like that. Um, and if there's anything that needs to be treated, such as blood pressure, things like that, we will of course titrate any medications necessary. Uh, but ideally, um, after we see them in the hospital, answer any questions, provide them with the education of, Hey, because you screened positive, we do want to follow you for a full year. Um, they will, we want to follow them closely initially. So ideally, um, most OBs are either following at week one and week six or only at week six. So I want to try to fill in that gap and go for more of that three to four or two to three so that we can kind of find that happy medium for the patient um, so that they're not missing care within that six week mark from the OBs. Um, and then after that, depending on patient um, needs, um, either three to four months after that, every three to four months until we hit that year mark. Of course, if patient needs to be seen sooner or more often, we can make that happen. Uh, but I do want to have them seen frequently throughout, uh, which is why telehealth to me is so important because some of these women, they don't have quote unquote, a condition currently, they're just at risk. And there's nothing that says that they will develop anything. Uh, it may just mean you, you might have diabetes when, you know, later in life, earlier than some of your other um, people, your age, or you may develop hypertension later. Um, but we are trying to catch those current conditions. Um, so we want to do some telehealth options for those individuals who maybe they are only at risk and nothing currently acute going on. So I don't want somebody having to come in every three months to say, by the way, you're still good. By the way, you're still good. Um, we can do that virtually. And then of course have that option for patients to come in who say, Hey, remember last visit, you told me if I started having shortness of breath that I needed to come see you. Well, here I am. Um, I just want that door to always be open for them to say, uh, I'm having shortness of breath. I don't know who to go to my, my OB. I'm not pregnant. I, this isn't an OP concern. And then just as Dr. Ellis was saying, sometimes our family medicine doctors, um, they're not asking, are you postpartum? That's a common question that's not being asked. Um, so if they're six months postpartum presenting with shortness of breath and leg swelling, um, at that consideration of a cardiac concern may not be considered. Um, so I hope that that answered your question. I think we have time for one more. Well, we don't really have time for one more, but we're gonna take one more. Uh, <laughs> hi, this is um, Cheryl Biddle. Uh, Dr. Ellis, thank you so much. It was very inspiring and it makes me uh, feel very privileged that I had good um, you know, OB and postpartum experiences, but Absolutely. it was very um, 
very eye-opening. You know, we have a, um, a book club coming up. It starts November 1st. I, I know I'm facilitating part of that. And it's, uh, it's related to, um, the, the, the book is um, How to Be a Patient by um, Santa um, Goldberg. She's an RN. So she looks at it from both a, an, um, a healthcare provider perspective, as well as, um, as, well as a, a patient and family member. And I'm telling you, it's really very uh, helpful. And I think that probably all healthcare um, providers should probably take a look at that so that they know what uh, patients do experience and how to modify their presentation to them when, when they're visiting them. Thank you. And let me say one thing right quick, back on implicit bias. Um, if there are great training programs that uh, can be utilized to help providers, I did one with the March of Doms and then one with A1, which is the Association of Women Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses. They have a program called Speak Up, and it's a great uh, program for uh, training providers on implicit bias. I really appreciate all the discussion that's gone on today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to participate. Everyone, thank you.